You're listening to Denver Orbit, featuring voices. I'm going to give you an awkwardly long and uncomfortable list of reasons why you shouldn't shave outside. Stories. Now, he was very outspoken about the effects of of war on himself. The music from Colorado's creative community. Listen at DenverOrbit.com or on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or most other podcast apps. The John of All Trades Podcast is a part of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we speak. You have all made it to the You have all made it, Coming to you from the X-Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 208, your host, John X. Thank you for joining us, glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, I've got Dan Grant. Dan Grant is someone I met last summer when I went to the Colorado Independent Publishers Association meeting and talked about podcasting. Really fun event, met some really cool people there. It's kind of the gift that keeps on giving here. I met Joan Rogliano through that. I met Sandra Murphy, who's a voiceover artist through that. And now Dan Grant. Dan is the author of The Singularity Witness. It's a thriller. It's available in virtually every format you could want on a ton of platforms. Go to the John of All Trades website, J-O-N-of-all-trades.us. You'll find a link to Dan's website. And on his site, you'll find all the different places it's available. Dan was nice enough to give me an autographed copy. I can't wait to dig into it. But on this week's show, we spend a lot of time talking about the process of writing. So if you are a writer or have ever done any writing or are curious about the way writers work, this is a really fun kind of deep dive into how you do your craft. And the interesting thing about Dan is not only is he a writer, not only is he an author, but he's also an electrical engineer. He tells me in this episode that he has a bachelor's in electrical engineering and a master's in creative writing. Now, I would say if you did a cross section, if you did like a search for people with a bachelor's and a master's, very rarely would those two things come up under the same person. So Dan's a great guy, and he's very enthusiastic about the way he talks about everything that he does, which when you listen to that, is really energizing. It's exciting when someone loves what they do, as Dan clearly does. He's got another book coming out called 13 Across. I can't wait to see that. Keep your eyes peeled for about May when you can expect that. And it sounds like he's just brimming with story ideas, so I can't wait to see what he does next. His episode is coming up in just a second, but first, I'd like to give a plug for 4 Degrees. That's our sponsor, been with us since episode 1. Now, if you're doing anything online, whether you're building a community or trying to build a website, or communicate through social media, 4Degrees is the firm you need to be talking to because they will supercharge your program and do it for a cost that's very attractive. They are exceptionally good at what they do. They not only craft great messages, but they understand the platforms they go on. And utilizing some of their specialized intel, they will get your message in front of the people who need to see it most on the platforms on which they exist. So check them out on the web. The number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Four Degrees, proud sponsor of the John of All Trades podcast. Now then, let's get to episode 208. I've got Dan Grant. He's an electrical engineer and an author. I met him through the Colorado Independent Publishers Association, and his episode starts right now.
Um, originally, in both of my stories, uh, I wrote them in the late 90s, and uh, I took some time off with my, my uh, job and stuff. And I tried to write, like, uh, at the time, like Tom Clancy. I was big. Uh, I was third-person omniscient. Um, I, I, I wrote a lot of mass to my stories. <laughs> right. and, and those don't really work in today's society or in today's readership with thrillers. Thrillers are a lot more pace-oriented and stuff like that. You can't get away with those techniques. So I had to actually learn how to write. And six years ago, my wife encouraged me to go to a writer's uh, group, Pikes Peak Writers, uh, in Colorado Springs. And that's where I took my first one. And, and people liked uh, the first series of chapters, and they, they gave me encouragement. So between my day job and everything else, I rewrote the uh, the first part of that book, and then with a day job, it really took a while to actually rewrite the whole thing. And I, it's not the same story. Uh, I kept the the same set of characters. So the two stories in the late '90s weren't bad stories. The craft of writing wasn't good enough, and okay. I didn't work hard enough at the craft of writing to be a storyteller to really make the stories sing, make the stories have a voice of their own. My career took off. The stories went in the drawer. I really wanted to pull them both out. So 13 Across, uh, no different than the Singularity Witness, I pulled that out. I knew that they had an order, um, even though they're a parallel series um, I, I essentially rewrote both of them. Uh, Thirteen uh, across has a crossword puzzle in it. Totally different crossword puzzle. It's uh, spread across Washington D.C. Different landmarks, different pacing, different cast of characters outside the main character. Uh, had a blast writing that one. So I actually, in earnest, started writing that one in Jan uh, in July, and then um, with a job and stuff like that, a, a day job in engineering. It took me pretty much all through December mostly to get it done. Okay. I needed a little bit of time in January to finish up some scenes. Uh, I have a special guest in the story that I don't want to reveal at the moment, but <laughs> I fictionalized a real-life person to be a subject matter expert. Had a blast doing that. I needed to place that real-life person in a in a scene setting that the people that know him would understand that mm. it's not out of character uh, and stuff like that. So it, it, and that was never in the first draft. I, okay. That was a, a new element in it. Um, I don't know too many people that write about real life people in their, their fictional stories uh, as fictional characters, but that was, that was right. sort of cool and, and, and fun. Well, I had an author on this, by the way, this is Dan Grant. And Dan is the author of The Singularity Witness yes. and the upcoming 13 Across. Yes. And so we met at SEPA, Colorado Independent Publishers Association, that I did like months ago where I was talking to the assembled group there in that weird like Scientology church, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was one of the more interesting venues I've ever done anything in. But um, we were talking about podcasting. And so we sort of stayed in contact and finally like we lined up so we could do this. What struck me about your story in particular is you alluded to your day job. Yes. And that's electrical engineer, right? Yeah. So in, in my brand of engineering, I do facilities and buildings and plants and, and manufacturing. And, and I've really been blessed since high school working in this, this career field. Um, I've had the opportunity to work in hospitals and research clinics and the Department of Defense. I've been in some really cool places, and and one of the things that I that I, that really jazzed me up, especially about uh, the Singularity Witness. Do you have security clearance? I did have a secret level clearance, but it actually okay. had nothing to do with my jobs. It happened to be a side uh, project that I was working with with the Department of Defense, but not okay. when I went to Thule Air Base and Vandenberg Air uh, Air Force Base. 
Um, I actually didn't need my clearance at those those points and stuff. But one of the unique things is I was doing uh, work with a brand new OR. It was a specialty OR for Roswell Park Cancer uh, Institute in, in New York. And and the design team is doing their thing with uh, figuring out this new R and everything else. And and the doctor, the the surgeon there, looked a little sort of bored. And so I went <laughs> up to him and started a conversation, and I, I couldn't get the guy to shut up. He, he just had so much... Uh, vigor and, and excitement about what he did, saving lives, doing this stuff. And we talked about how this new specialty piece of equipment actually made his world better and, and allowed him to service his patients. And I took that little character segment and I said, that's the character in the singularity witness. I wanted somebody with passion and drive. And of course, that's a unique setting, uh, almost magical at that point in time. Serendipity. Uh, absolutely. There's, there's a little bit of fate in, in a, a lot of things that we do. And so that actually allowed me to build into the character, uh, Thomas Parker is his name, and uh, really craft him up in terms of what his true mission in life is, his point of view and stuff like that. And I, I even played a little on the personality uh, quirks that the, the doctor had, um, which made the character better. You know what it reminds me of? Uh, if you've ever heard an interview with someone who does impressions, you know, like uh, Daryl Hammond talked about this. He said, I, if I'm impersonating an actor, I don't want to see them in character. You know, I want to see them interviewed so that I can grab on to something. And in particular, if they're a little bit drunk, <laughs> then I get, I get to see that. And I, I, this is a long way of making a point. But when I'm ghostwriting, because I do that a lot, you know, I have to write in someone else's voice. I like to see what their writing is, especially like if they send me emails or something, you know, do they do staccato sentences? Do they use a lot of clauses? Is there tons and tons of commas? And I can pick that up pretty quickly. What I'm hearing from you is you were able to take this small, relatively short interaction, right? Absolutely. It was no more than 30 minutes. And almost build an entire sort of novel around that, which is really, really cool. You never know when and where inspiration is going to strike, but that's kind of the joy of being a writer. Yeah. You know, and, and um, when I originally wrote uh, The Singularity Witnesses... I, and before we go any oh, further, I, do a little bit of... Give us a synopsis of what The Singularity Witness is about. So The Singularity Witness is is a, a, a little bit of a Michael Crichton or Robin Cook story. Uh, Michael Crichton wrote about big ideas and, and big subject matters and, and everything else. And Robin Cook I was, mean, and Jurassic Park and Andromeda Strain. Absolutely. Um, yeah, crazy. And and, uh, and Sphere and a lot of different yeah. other stories. And Con Robin Cook yeah. wrote about uh, people in clinical settings, and, 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 and they both wrote about science and medicine. And what I did is, is I pulled the two together and said – what if I blended those two worlds? So uh, Thomas Parker is a, is a, uh, a neuro uh, neuroscientist. He's working at um, Princeton. He actually got his uh, uh, medical degree from the University of Colorado in our own neighborhood here uh, and stuff like that. But he's teaching at Princeton because he doesn't want to go into the research setting. So he's, he's doing research and stuff like that, and he, and he really comes across this cutting-edge piece of research that other people start to take notice of. And, and parallel to this little moment of his, um, Kate Morgan is involved in a, an FBI team. Uh, a U.S. senator is kidnapped, 
and the FBI is tasked with essentially finding him. So there's a lot of different probes going on. Yeah. She's sent to Princeton. She needs the good doctor to get into the research lab. He's being recruited by the research lab. They get in the lab. All sorts of crazy things are happening. Uh, Thomas Parker has to use his, his science and his research skills to figure out the riddle. So there's a riddle inside a riddle here in that uh, Thomas Parker obviously is on a quest uh, but then, as a reader, you want to know who is the singularity witness. That actually is part of the quest of the story, is 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 evolving that piece. Uh, obviously, Kate Morgan, she's an FBI agent. She needs to find the senator. So it all comes together at the very end. And, of course, they have to survive to get out. So um, there's wow. there's the, the good uh, – the, the, the villains – uh, the sub villains, a lot of different stakeholders who want the prize, which is the technology, uh, the cutting edge research. Uh, and obviously, uh, Thomas Parker is torn between what does he do and, and what does he not do. Kate Morgan actually finds herself uh, cut off from the bureau. She's she's inside a research institute. She can't communicate with anybody else. She has to make uh, decisions and, and everything else. So she's caught up in this ethical dilemma of of what's going on and everything else. And she actually is a, a medical doctor who chose uh, to leave uh, medicine and go into forensics, and that's why she's working mm. for the FBI. So she has this huge ethical piece to it as well. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a blast to write. I mean, that, that sounds dense. I mean, that sounds yes. rich, <laughs> um, which is really fun. I think uh, I was reading up on you before we did this a little bit, um, and I was struck by what you said. You know, there's sort of like a riddle at the center of it almost. Did you cite Dan Brown at one point as someone that you enjoyed? Uh, I love Dan Brown. Um, people love him or hate him. But as a storyteller, he <laughs> That's actually – That's true. He is very polarizing. Yeah. As a storyteller, uh, he reinvigorated thrillers. Uh, thrillers were pretty stale at the time. Obviously, there's John Grisham and there's a couple others that were yeah, sure. uh, mass market commercial uh, thriller authors. Uh, but he really uh, ratcheted up. Michael Crichton had waned. He got off into other endeavors. He, in in terms of writing, he wasn't writing as pro- prolific as he was. Uh, and Dan Brown comes along and he takes history and religion and and a thriller and and really draws a conspiracy. And what most people don't realize is he wrote several novels that did. Uh, Okay, before, uh, obviously. <laughs> sort of middling, the, right? Yeah, the, the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that. And then that obviously uh, created his career. And then that actually jump-started many other authors in his wake. Uh, no different than J.K. Rowling did with sure. with Young Adult and, and stuff like that. She really created a marketplace uh, and stuff like that. So I, I have a lot to owe to him, uh, to John Grisham, obviously, to Michael Crichton, uh, Robin Cook, a lot of masterful uh, uh, writers who came across. Matter of fact, an interesting thing about Robin Cook, most people don't, um, you may not even remember the, the movie off of the Coma book, but when he came out with his, his thriller, people didn't even know how to categorize it. And one <laughs> reviewer called it a hospital thriller. So he actually created the market edge of, of uh, medical thriller. Mm. No different than Michael Crichton sort of wrote the science fiction kind of thriller. And what Michael Crichton did is, is he wrote science fiction, but he pulled all that into today's present time. So he was masterful like that. Um, and that's exactly the approach I used is – is I, I take a little bit of the science fiction, pulled it in today's present time setting, mixed it up with some medicine. In this particular case, 
uh, and and wrote a story about a thriller, you know, and and, and stuff like that. So, well, Sir Isaac Newton says, uh, "If I have seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants." Yeah, right. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's it's always nice to hear when people are super aware of their influences and their inspirations. And it sounds like you are. As far as this genre goes, you know, if you read any sort of literary criticism, sometimes stuff like this gets dismissed as like airport books. Absolutely. Right? And does that ever bother you? No, um, because I I grew up reading paperback novels and stuff like that. Alistair MacLean wrote Men's Action Adventure. Uh, Louis Lamar uh, wrote Westerns. That's the kind of stuff that I grew up as a kid. This is the they weren't quite dime store novels, but. <laughs> right. um, uh, you know, they were twenty five cents to forty five cents to fifty. Yeah, they're kind cents. of pulpy, and and, and that's what they were. Uh, they were essentially a midlist set of authors that were making a living back when paperbacks were were big. And those are the authors that I actually uh, grabbed onto that that sparked my imagination. So when it came time for me to tell a story, I I, I read John Grisham's The Firm right away, and 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 it was all the rage at the time. Uh, he too created a market niche, uh, legal thrillers, yeah. and and I recognized that his approach was a little different than the people before him. Uh, Michael Crichton comes along with a drama and a strain, uh, a little different. Tom Clancy comes along uh, writing military thrillers, and there were people before Tom Clancy, but he happened to package it with technology and science, and he took it a little step further than Michael Crichton did. Uh, and he got into nuts and bolts and 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 really created uh, a market niche of, of techno thrillers, even though he didn't stay in that niche. He sort of started it. And so when it came time for me to actually um, write, I, I developed that bug in college. I, I did things a little different in my career in that I had a talent for drafting, hand drafting back when that was state of the art. And out of high school, that's not so much a thing as much. No, no. Today's kids, you pick up a pencil and you do what with it? Um, (laughs) Is it kind of a lost art? It is. It is. uh, Everything now is is on computers, uh, computer aided design. Do you ever show off your old skills? Oh, all the time, especially yeah. if I get a chance. Straight lines and, and lettering, that's great. Are there are there kids who are like, wow, yeah, like yeah. you do that without the aid of a computer? Block letters, yeah, what's, <laughs> what's that? So um, I actually got a job in high school being a draftsman and I worked my way into design. And then um, pizza and beer with a buddy of mine who was a mechanical engineer led me to go to college several years later. I went to college. I had so much fun. I got a a degree in electrical engineering in a six-year period because I had so much fun in college. And then I got immediately on top of that, I got a master's in creative writing and a master's in English, which, believe it or not, oddly enough, made me a better engineer uh, because I could communicate. But the the master's... Well, Dan, I got to tell you, first of all, if you were to do a search across everyone with a bachelor's and a master's degree (laughs) across the country, how many of them have... Electrical engineer, creative writing. It's probably not many. Not not many at all. Yeah. I, I mean, my bachelor's and master's are both in the same thing. Yes. And so, yeah, that that sort of uh, cross-section of skill sets, I would say, is pretty unusual. But to be honest, it, it, it truly made me a better engineer, allowing me to communicate with with colleagues and, and teammates and, and carry on a vision and stuff like that. Oh my God. I, okay. So I have to interject with this story. Yes. Uh, I do public relations in my day job and public speaking. And I've, I taught public speaking for two years and I was sitting with this engineer and I'm pretty sure I've told this story on the show before. So anyone who's heard this before, I sorry, but you're going to hear it again. 
I was sitting with him and I said, Jeff, what was your major in? And he said, I had, I have a degree in chemical engineering from Texas A&M. And I said, when you were studying chemical engineering at Texas A&M, did you ever think you'd have to do this much public relations? And he said, no. And I said, when was the last time you did any engineering? Cause he was like a business unit manager. And he said, Oh, probably at least 10 years. He said, eventually, if you don't embrace the communication side of what you do, it's going to be very career limiting. You're going to find that ceiling really, really quickly. And so the fact that you had that skill set in your hip pocket, you're describing it to me. That had to really give you a leg up on your peers. It did and, and allowed me to do different things inside my career in that um, whether it was management or, or public relations and, and we call it business development and marketing and in in my side, it really let me do a lot of different things. And of course, the the crazy thing is, is it's a left brain, right thing kind of thing, yeah. meaning you're an engineer and you're, you want to be a creative writer. But you, got, you, you have to be able to con, uh, convey the vision Absolutely. to people. And so the fact that you're thinking in narrative terms, you know, how do you get people to buy into the vision that the company is putting forth? There's the engineering projects, but why are we doing this? And to what end, right? You know, uh, a lot of interesting things about uh, marketing, and I love business books and, and everything else, um, is telling a story. Yeah. Uh, you're telling a story about either yourself, your skill set, your team, your company, and the clients on the other side. Um, it, they do it in politics all the time. It's the story. It's the message. Uh, it's wrapped in a particular way. Uh, it's targeting a, a particular audience. And, and of course, I can use that as as a writer and and do lots of different things. So uh, now I got voices in my head, right? So that's, that's great. <laughs> Anyone who can write dialogue uh, and write it well, who can have different voices in their head and and then call upon them to emerge at the correct time. Uh, because I was thinking back to, I think I saw Michael Schur interviewed once who created parks and recreation. Yes. And someone asked him, who's your favorite person to write? And he said, probably purred happily, who was like the, uh, the news guy. Yeah. And he had a very sort of, uh, he, he would an overly descriptive way of speaking. He's like, and coming up next, this sentence, which is the following. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I could see getting into that rhythm. And when you write that, it's just very satisfying. It scratches a very specific itch. Do you have that with your characters? I do, and, and one of the unique things is is that my FBI agent, her name is Kate Morgan, uh, obviously a woman, and and in in the first book, um, I actually got uh, two pieces of advice from a a, a a nonfiction agent. We had coffee together, and and he asked me about the singularity witness, and and the first question he asked is, was it a series? And I said, yes, sir. And then he said, is there a romantic element between the hero heroine? And I thought a minute and I said, yes, sir. So when I was writing it, I really had to create a little bit of sexual tension. Obviously, they meet as strangers. Um, she has a quest. He has a quest. They're actually opposite at times. They come in and out of their their rhythms as characters. But in the end, they have to work together to survive. But I, I, I put in a little bit of the romantic sexual tension um, in in the setting, and, and I had fun with it. One of the things I had to do a, as a guy writing a woman is I had to make sure that it was honest, it met who she was as a character. I had to play with it a little bit. She had a voice different than his voice, and obviously the villain had a voice. Mm -hmm. And and the great thing about villains is you can make them really nasty and, and really crazy. And, and villains often have a, a voice 
and because their villains are the heroes of their own stories. Uh, the great thing about <laughs> I like that. That's yeah, really good. A villain is a hero of his own story. Oh, absolutely. And if you flip that side of the coin, you can actually tell the villain's story, which is is really crazy. They have. The it's like world. the play Wicked. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. They want to save the world in their own mindset or or uh, fashion it or create it uh, and stuff like that. And a lot of them go to dastardly extremes to make that happen. And 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 that, in my book, actually created the ethics of, of what would people do uh, to mm. go to those extremes. And, and history is a great uh, teacher. Uh, even in this country, uh, some of the government enterprises went to pretty serious extremes. Um, we don't have it as much in today's society as as it was pre World War II and during World War II. But uh, it's it's pretty sad. Some of the things that the government, if they weren't directly in charge of, they sponsored. Meaning the money was behind it and the the vision was behind it because they needed to achieve that. And of course you could go across the globe and, and see right. other things too. Well, and I think uh, depending on your political ideology, there are those who would disagree with you to say that that was, uh, that that is less so today than it was back then. Yeah, we don't hear about it as much, which is crazy. Uh, we know yeah. it's, it's out there, um, but we're not getting the exposure yeah. to it. Like we, we did uh, in other avenues and stuff like yeah, that. I think that's fair. When I was writing for one of my clients, it was I was writing descriptions of houses for this real estate agent, um, and they were like million dollar homes, and so really, you know, well appointed, super fancy, real high price point, which was a rhythm of writing that I wasn't used to, and so getting into that was really really hard. And I thought, okay, what kind of mindset do I need to be in? And I went on my Pandora, and I thought, okay, I'm going to play music here that sounds like music you'd hear in one of those clothing stores that is lit weird and has like nine things for sale, right? <laughs> you know, when you walk into one of those super fancy clothing stores, there's like three people working, they're all texting and you're like, how does this place make any money? Absolutely. And so, but I, I found a station and I go, okay, this is perfect. And it got me sort of in this really like fancy, you know, uh, highfalutin kind of high culture mindset. And I was able to bang out the description really quickly. What I'm curious about is given all the different elements that you have in this book, medical thriller, uh, you know, some science fiction, uh, suspense, uh, you know, you mentioned romantic tension when you were writing these different elements, how do you sort of get in the correct mindset to do each of them? They, they say for, uh, most writers in general, it, it takes a little bit of a warm up period. So you start and some people can turn it off better than, than others, but it takes me about 20 minutes to get into a rhythm and, and I can't listen to music. What I actually do believe I can't or, listen to music with words. Uh, I'll, I'll say that I yeah. can, I can listen to music without words, but if, if there's lyrics, like I'm not writing. So I actually have uh, uh stuff that I got off of YouTube. One is, is a uh, Harbor and and the ocean and the and the boats okay, and nice. stuff like that. And then the other one I have is seashore stuff. I like to have a little bit of a, a noise that goes on that actually won't influence me, so that I can put my brain to focus. I did go to uh, do some classical music for a scene. He's a good guy, bad guy kind of thing, but he's he's necessary in it, and and he's doing something really evil to somebody. And and he's listening to classical music in the background. And I said, the only way I can write this is if I go to that. So I went to 
a New York uh, radio station online, and I listened to jazz and, and, and classical music, and I said, this is working. So, Well, my vocabulary is more movies than it is books, unfortunately. Yes. And so when you described classical music underscoring some, someone doing something really evil, the first thing I thought of was Silence of the Lambs. Absolutely. <laughs> right? I mean, you picture Hannibal Lecter in that cell. Yes. When he gets the better of the guards. Yes. Spoiler alert for a movie that's 27 <laughs> years old. <laughs> and has had sequels. Right. <laughs> uh, but you think of that, and yeah, I could see how that would get you in the correct mindset. Yeah. I, I don't do uh, as much music uh, and stuff like that, but I like to have a little bit of, of a noise in the background. Do you and, do writing exercises? I don't – not anymore because mainly I want to actually put myself to work. So I don't – matter of fact, I have so many story ideas in my head that um, I don't do the writing exercises. I just get to work. Oh, good. Okay. So you're like uh, Alan Iverson. Like we're talking about yeah. practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, practice by doing. Yeah, it's like, come on. Wait, let's get to game time. Why are you busting my chops about practice? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I, I'm also a plotter. So uh, what I'll do is, is I'll plot out the story and then I free write in between those plot points. I love the creative aspect. I need to get better, I guess, as a, as a writer and, and do more detailed plotting. Um, I also do research along the way. And it's really amazing where your head goes going, ooh, the character needs this. I need to go off and, and do that piece of research. That slows me down a little bit. So you were talking about how many words you get out and, and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, some days I'll write 500. Some days I'll write 2,500 words. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty rare that I get to 5,000 because I free write so much. And I let the muse of being a writer take me to where I need to go. Even though I know that I have a, a short-term destination, i got to write to this point. It was a blast in 13 Across because I knew it's, it's based on particular seven different stops in the city of Washington, D.C. I knew I needed to get to that next stop. The question was how or what did yeah. I need to do or what plot twist did I need to put in and, and letting your mind just sort of run with that. And the other advantage is, is if you're thinking about that and you're free writing about that, you get up and you take a break and then all of a sudden your head goes – oh, the character needs to do this, or you forgot that because they didn't set it up right. Is that ever challenging to come back to, though? Because so, sometimes I'll be writing something, and I'll know where I want it to end up, and you end up writing that part, you know, that like that spark of inspiration. But you know there's almost like this this preamble that you have to like you have to establish it and you have to set it up correctly, but you're like, I just want to get to the fireworks factory already, you know? And, and it's like, oh, I got to I gotta. Just sort of grit my teeth and slog through this swamp of either exposition or whatever, right? Is that a problem? Not as much to me because I'm writing a thriller. Oh, so sure. um, you don't – although I love, I would love to take the Clancy uh, detours and, and go off and describe stuff. But I don't really have that luxury. Maybe Dan Brown does, but certainly I don't. So the story needs to be a lot tighter and, and there always is something – Going on, I do have my favorite scenes to write where oh, sure. you're going, well, this isn't as sexy. It's needed. Sometimes I'll skip ahead, but most often not, I'll, I'll write chronologically. Uh, or if I really have the muse, then the really the muse is at me. I might jump ahead just a little bit because I wanted to capture the magic of that little moment as a writer and write it. And then I'll come back and, and write to that point and stuff like that. Uh, a couple scenes as I plot. 
I'll go ahead and write out on a lot more detail and stuff like that that I know will be really gripping moments. And obviously the the climax is always the scene that everybody goes, oh, yay. <laughs> and, and in 13 Across, because I have seven steps, I was trying not to have fatigue. Yeah. And, and everything has to be fresh. Everything has to be different. You're, in my case, the heroine has to live through all the different stops or it's not going to be so fun, right? And, <laughs> and you still have to put her in jeopardy. Uh, and then the audience is going to go, what's going to happen to her next, right? What's going to be the yeah. thing? So I actually can't wait for my a- my editor to, to look at that piece and go, is it working? Is it not working? And and I already have some notes on my side, and I'm anxious to see hers and, and, and how to do the final tweaks to it. Yeah, that's always interesting. I remember writing my thesis, and my my thesis advisor was really great about this. That's probably the biggest singular project I've done. And I mean, that's only a hundred pages, a hundred like word document pages too. <laughs> like not, not even, not even like a hundred real pages. <clears throat> but, uh, I remember I used to hand him chapters on Fridays and he said, because we we're on a tight timeline, he's like, I'll do it over the weekend and get it back to you Monday, which was great for me because I just handed in a chapter. My weekend's free and I can go yeah. party. But I remember on Sunday being both really excited and very nervous about getting them back. Oh, absolutely. Because you've sort of put it out there and you're like, okay, like I, I to, for lack of a better term, my nuts are on the table here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. And you're going, okay, like what's, how bloody is this page going to come back? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know for a fact that I, I don't suck, meaning the material <laughs> is just not or- horrendous in either book. The question is, is, is is the manuscript or is the story going to sing? So, um, and, and of course, we all want a, a sense of fulfillment at the end. You know, we want the hero, the heroine, uh, to win, the villain to be vanquished. In Silence of the Lambs, villain number one is 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 actually villain number one gets away and and has a sequel, and villain number two uh, gets a bullet. So uh, <laughs> it's one of those kind of things that was fulfillment because the heroine needed. Obviously, that was her mission to catch the bad guy and stuff like that. And and, and Hannibal Lecter was, was unique in Silence of the Lamb in that he was villain and mentor in, mm-hmm. in a way, uh, psychotic, sick, and twisted. Um, Thomas Harris actually wrote a really good story. Do not write like him. His writing won't sell, but uh, the story was fantastic. Uh, and Why and, won't his writing sell? Um, if you read his writing, he doesn't have a very commercial style. So if you're trying to mimic uh, that kind of storytelling, I don't think it's it's commercial. And I think okay. other people will, will be a little put off by the writing style. Interesting. Not – that's that's just the mechanics of his his style. I just don't think it sells for for thrillers in today. He was lightning in a bottle. It worked really great. It worked great for him. It does not dim- diminish the story in in any way. Uh, but th- he gets lost in some of the pacing and stuff. But he can. The story was so rich in the characters gotcha. and doing so many different things that. Um, it was pretty unique, especially at the time when he really had two villains, right, and, yeah. and stuff like that, and and both were despising, despicable, and and everything else. And and Clarice Starling was the rookie. You often will see that in your heroes and your heroines, where they're the rookie coming in. And and even I used it a little bit in my my first novel, The Singularity Witness, where Kate Morgan's sort of the rookie. She's mm-hmm. she's been around the block, but not in that particular instance, which makes her a fish out of water. Uh, Clarice Starling is the same way, All right? And stuff like that. And and then of course, 
then you go through all of those sequences and do they live, right? That's that's the end, right? <laughs> well, Clarice Starling finds herself in a basement in the dark with the uh, Buffalo Bill. And, you, you know, as a reader, you're you're on the edge. You don't oh, know. Yeah. You know, and Clarice actually gets a little lucky and, and uh, Buffalo Bill doesn't survive, which is what you want for uh, uh. villains. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. You brought something up and – it's always interesting to me to know where our strengths and our weaknesses are. In terms of writing, what are you best at? That's a great question. I actually had to relearn how to write thrillers. Uh, I took a, a class from a, a thriller author. He writes historical thrillers named Steve Barry. I had to really relearn. I, I had a master's degree in it. Uh, I know all the mechanics. But in order to be more of a commercial kind of thriller author, I had to relearn how style. So that was a, a, a struggle. I still overwrite. Uh, I, mm. I put scaffolding in is what my editor called it. I write stuff that doesn't necessarily add, but I like it. And she's always trying to keep me honest on she's on trying, trying to pare it back a little bit. Yes, trying to pare it back, even though it doesn't slow down the story. I don't mind it. Um, it's a little Dan Brown-like in, in the storytelling. Uh, many readers don't actually notice that, but people who are on the editing side and and on the pristine side of what uh, writing should be, uh, <laughs> they don't like that kind of extra stuff. So I, I have a tendency to write just a little too much stage direction, right? Uh, yeah. And so they get, uh, mainly because I don't mind it as a, as an you know, as, as a, a reader, reader yeah. and and I know most readers don't care for, it, don't mind it either. Most purists who love writing, so that's one of my struggles. Is is that not that I'm clancy like, but I have a tendency to overwrite some areas. I did have to learn how to not really uh, be a techno dump where you're putting everything <laughs> on the page. I had these really grand things that uh, my first novel got fifteen thousand words cut out of it. Uh, my word. Yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. And that was after I already cut 15,000. So she actually made it about the right size of where the story needed to be. I'm, I'm not so that, I'm not that prolific right now, meaning I'm trying not to busy up the, the story. You know, I struggle as, as an author. I actually struggle to read stuff, meaning read other people's material, uh, mainly because now when I read, what do I want to do? I'm an engineer by trade. I want to dissect it. I want to break it down. Yeah. So it slows me down. So I actually don't read as much for enjoyment now as I used to when you used to just gobble up novels. And now I want to dissect them going, well, that worked or that sucks <laughs> or whatever, you know. And I'm, I'm still learning as an author. I'm still trying to uh, get better. Um, so I'm not as much of a vibrant reader as I should be. Well, what's funny is people used to ask me, they're like, oh, I'll bet you listen to a lot of podcasts. And there was a, a stretch there for like two years where I didn't listen to any podcast but my own just because that was like the last thing I wanted to do. You know, this is my job. I spend a lot of time with huge chunks of audio. I didn't want to spend more time with huge chunks of audio. <laughs> yeah. uh, thankfully, I've come back around because there's some new podcasts out there, some new formats, people doing interesting things with it, and it's pushed me in new directions, and it's sort of reignited my love for it. But when you are thick in it, it's hard. Yeah, absolutely, and I can't read. It's tough for me to read while I'm writing, meaning if I'm oh, sure, in, the, yeah. in the, the, day, the day step, because your mind will read somebody else's material and go, 
ooh, that's really clever. And then what do you want to do? You want to put it to work. And I really try to separate myself. But there are moments where you just catch something and you just can't put it down. Yeah. Uh, Andy Weir's The Martian was like that. I remember going, oh, I got to read this start to cover. <laughs> so everything else went to uh, went to the, the back shelf and, and I had to r- read that story. I am excited to read The Singularity Witness because as I read – I. I'll be honest with you, I haven't read it yet. But um, it reminded me a little bit of a book I read a few years ago by a guy named Drew McGarry called The Postmortal, where uh, someone discovers the cure for aging. No one ages anymore. Like, you can still be killed, but aging is not going to kill you. Like, whenever you take this cure, that's how old you are for the rest of your life. And that ends up causing a number of societal problems, as you might imagine. And... It, it becomes sort of a science fiction, uh, you know, medical, a little bit technological thriller. So listening to you describe yours, I'm like, okay, I really enjoyed that book. I think like that one sounds like it'd be in my wheelhouse as well. Have you ever heard of that one? I haven't. I okay. Haven't. That's uh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, he wrote another one called The Hike that was just kind of weird, um, <laughs> but I liked even better. <laughs> um, but I remember describe like hearing you describe when you read something and you go, Oh, I really like the style of writing here. I like the way this prose feels and the way it flows. I was writing a short story in college and I went and saw Lewis black perform the stand, the standup comic. <laughs> and he's got such an angry, like punchy delivery style that I, I sat down to write character dialogue for my characters and it, it all came out sounding like Lewis black. I go, okay, I gotta <laughs> take a minute from this. Yeah, this, is, this is messing up the tone of my story. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about is you've expressed, at least in some way, you know, everyone wants to have success in this. And That's right. You still have a day job. You're working as an engineer. What is the path forward for an aspiring author such as yourself to make this their profession? And how does that road unfold in front of you? Um, I actually came out as an independent author. Um, I tried the traditional paths, and I had a lot of flirting. Um, like I had, pitching to houses and I pitched and stuff? to agents. I pitched to editors. I had people take a look at it, people that wanted to review it. Uh, the traditional path takes a long time. Mm. Uh, it's gone through a lot of consolidation and stuff like that. So I, I tried that in earnest for about three years plus. Um, and realized that I had too many stories to tell, and if I waited in line, that would actually slow me down. Um, that actually doesn't diminish me as an author as long as I uh, I would recommend that every author get an editor. Uh, you can't self-edit your own material. You're just too no. close to it. Um, you need an, an editor that is in your genre. So if, if an editor is reading romance or science fiction or fantasy, that probably wouldn't work in, in, in my particular case. Uh, I needed somebody who edited thrillers and, and my editor had worked with New York times bestsellers and stuff like that. So I was really fortunate. Um, she, she knows the field, she knows the genre and stuff like that. She edits a lot of other stuff, but, but this is one of her areas. The other thing I would recommend is, is that a network in your community or or regionally with a writer's group that fits you. Um, I actually support several in, in the, the Rocky Mountain region. Uh, have a blast. The group that actually that I met Steve Berry at is international uh, thriller writers. In, in They do a conference in New York City. That's where thriller authors are. There's one for uh, mystery writers of America. There's science fiction and fantasy. There's romance writers. In most genres, if you're a genre-based author, there are those groups. Those groups help make you better. 
in Colorado, I'm going to brag, we have a couple groups that just are outstanding that, that service writers across all genres and stuff like that. Um, that's a great place to start. And then once you get things tweaked and you get ready to go, I would also supplement that with, with people of like mind in your genre of what you want to write. And, and if you're a, an author that wants to do a little bit of everything, pick and choose your spots. Don't quit, quit your J job so soon unless you uh, really get lucky uh, and stuff like that. Uh, in my case, I'm, I'm phasing down one career so I can go ahead and start another. Uh, you want a couple books under you. Uh, if you've got stories to tell, write those stories. Uh, make sure that they get out. Uh, be the best crass person you can, crass woman, crass man, uh, that you can in terms of, of writing well and telling a good story. Uh, that is paramount. And if you go the indie route, do not put out anything that is mediocre. Um, <laughs> I had a boss in engineering that said, strive to be brilliant because anybody can be average. Um, mm. That is is truth in that there's a lot of stuff out there, even from traditional authors. But the indie authors, the independent authors get the knock of putting out average stuff. And that's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of talented independent authors out there. I think there's a marketplace for everybody, and you're going to see more traditional authors uh, go indie or or go what's called hybrid, where they're doing a little bit of both, whether it's economic or or taking care of their fans. Some of them uh, want to write and tell stories. Um, in my particular case, I can't write probably more than two stories a year because everything I do is research-based. Sure. But there's a lot of authors that write three, four novels a year and stuff like that. Um, tell your story, you know, and, and dare to dream, I think, too. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly no harm in that. And I think you've done a good job of talking about how you can hone your craft and, you know, level yourself up in terms of skill. But what I'm interested in is what's the path forward for, you know, viability to where you can do this as a living? You know, and as an independent publisher, as an independent author, how do you get to the point where you are supporting yourself in that regard? I think in my particular case, it's going to be a backlist. So uh, I'm going to probably need to have uh, several novels out other than striking lightning in a bottle and uh, like Andy Weir did with the March and everything else. He could quit his day job. Uh, those are pretty rare. Uh, J.K. Rowling with Harry yeah, Potter yeah. Uh, and stuff like that uh, really changed the needle. Uh, short of that, I think it's just uh, a series of good stories that then I'm on books five, six, seven, whatever it takes. Um, and then the readers go back and they'll see that story. Yeah. And then they'll come back and, and do this backlist. They go, um, oh, I really like this. Yeah. Oh, he's written more. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And then you, okay, that, that makes sense. And I mean, one of the things you hear about from musicians and I mean, certainly podcasters is first of all, very few people are making money in podcasting right now, <laughs> but they're like, how do I monetize my back catalog? But in terms of authors, I could see where that would actually be a viable business model. Absolutely. There are some authors out there that are writing eight-plus stories a year. Good Lord. Um, I, I can't do that, but it takes a particular genre, meaning yeah. it takes a genre that uh, the audience consumes books a lot. And, and most of those book sales are going to be online. And, and that right. also is is a place that, you know, with e-readers and everything else, people are just chewing up books. And, and these People will read three, four books a, uh, a week. And what is that, like bodice rippers, that kind of thing? Um, well, I know a couple authors that are writing in the science fiction and fantasy uh, right. genre. And they're writing, whether it's 
dystopian stuff or urban fantasy stuff or sure. paranormal stuff. They're writing and, and that audience just devours those electronic books. Mm. That's not my model, but um, they've made enough to go ahead and quit their day job. Uh, nice. But it takes a volume-based business. And so if you write for two or three years and you're writing eight books a year, that's t- 24 books. So if you're now finding yeah. new authors, you're going and selling that backlist, which is going to carry you through. Obviously, you mean new readers. If you're finding readers, new readers, yeah, 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 yeah. I got gotcha. you. Wow. Uh, that ex- sounds exhausting, doesn't it? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, as, as someone who writes professionally, and my stuff is very sort of corporate speak and all that. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard sometimes to get back into a creative writing mindset because I have a very particular way of writing that pays my bills. And anytime I try to deviate from that, my, my brain wants to correct. It's like, you're never going to make any money on this. It's like, that's not why we're doing it. Okay. Yeah. Shut up on that yeah, side. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're not interested in your commentary right now. Okay. <laughs> it's our time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's tough, man. But, uh, okay. So you mentioned that, uh, 13 across is with your editor. When yes. do you have designs on it coming out? So I'm targeting May. Um, I got a couple events coming up, uh, this summer. Um, and I want to, the great thing about being an independent author is, is, is if you work right now, I'm, I'm in cover art, uh, soon I'll be in interior layout nice. after the edits are done. So the edits come first, the cover art is parallel to that. I'm working with a gal now to go ahead and, and do some, a few things. Um, I got to actually build a crossword puzzle to fit inside <laughs> it, which is, is unique and different. Um, uh, so I, I'm going to work with somebody on that. And then it really it's it's jumping into uh, promotion of the material and everything else. And that's one thing that, that most people don't realize as an independent author that is so time-consuming if you're really trying to launch. It doesn't matter if you're launching a coffee shop or a brewery or, or you're, you're now selling books. It takes a lot of time. And, yeah. and if you're the person that's being the, the, the author and then you're, you're trying to promote the book and, and get it out there – that is part of the the business that I wish didn't take as much time because it really does take a, a while to get the the word out, even if it's a few hours here, a few hours there. Guess what? You're not doing. You're not writing. Um, <laughs> that is that is the devil in the details uh, part of the business. That you're the chief cook and bottle washer as well. It's just something you got to work through. So I, I'm on that. I probably won't. Uh, I'll probably do it a little bit different. The great thing about book number one is you'll learn a lot of things that oh, yeah. that work or don't work or uh, ways to spend money that you probably wish, wow, that was really dumb. Now I'm a lot more streamlined, a little bit smarter. I, I know what I, I'm, I'm doing. I built a little bit of a community of readers now. Uh, so you, you have the audience there. I can go ahead and, and continue to grow that. And then essentially I'm growing my place in a in a very busy market a marketplace. It's not as probably writing thrillers isn't as busy and as crazy as writing science fiction and fantasy. I think that's exhausting in in that marketplace. Romance as well. There's so many talented people, so many stories out there. I don't know how you get noticed in those marketplaces. Yeah. Probably a lot of hustle and a lot, a lot of luck. Uh, in my marketplace, yeah, it's it's cluttered like all of them, but I'm writing a little differently than some of the others, and so I'm not – piggybacking on anybody else's concept or set of ideas. Well, that's cool, Dan. I think that's as good a place as any to stop. So how about this? Now's the time on the show when we do plugs. Yes. Where can people find more about you, social media presence, website, anything you want to plug? Do it now. Uh, you can actually uh, find me on on a good old Google search. Uh, my, my 
my website is dangrantbooks.com. Uh, you can find me on, on Facebook at Dan Grant Author. Uh, you can find The Singularity Witness by typing that in a good old Google search or Amazon. I'm in uh, through the, the stream of, of Barnes & Noble. I'm, nice. I'm a wide author. So one of the unique things about today's marketplace is, is um, where is your business at? Uh, and in my case, I decided to go wide. So uh, I'm in a, uh, I think I'm in 50 different bookstores nationwide. Cool. Uh, I'm in several locals. Um, you can get me online. I'm in hardback, uh, trade paperback, and electronic book. Uh, soon I'll be in audiobook. The audiobook took a little bit of a, a side while I wrote 13 Across. Uh, first things first, write the next book, mm, right? Sure. Uh, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Wow, that's, uh, that's a lot of plugs. We'll have links to all of that on the John of All Trades Companion blog piece. That's johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N of alltrades.us. Dan Grant, this was uh, an enormous pleasure, and uh, thanks for reaching out again, man. Thank you, John. And we're going to turn the page on episode 208. Thank you, Dan Grant, for being on the show. Continued success to you. It was really fun getting to stay in touch with you. I hope this next book does great things for you. John of All Trades Podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Dan may tell stories in a traditional way. I'll help your business tell its story. Four pillars of my business are training, content, engagement, and podcasting. All of those are in service of helping your business or organization tell its story in a new way. So hit me up on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. The John of All Trades podcast is on social media. The same handle for all five platforms. That's J-O-A-T pod on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Hit me up on any of those platforms. If it's Snapchat or Pinterest, I'm probably not going to be on there much, but you can go ahead and try that. That'll be fun for everyone. The first job series that we do goes up on Mondays. You heard Dan Grant earlier this week as a draftsman making $2.90 an hour and having to cook, fries and wash dishes on the weekend. I love doing the first job series. Those are available on Facebook and LinkedIn. Again, that's on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. They're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and about a billion other podcatchers, as well as the homepage johnofalltrades.us back here next week with a brand new show we keep rolling on with new content 2019 is flush with great guests so i will see you back here then and until i hear you again say goodnight that's good johnny the john of all trades podcast is a part of the denver podcast network in the shadow of the mountains we speak, speak.